So let me ask you a question this morning. Are you ready? Tell me the answer to this. How many people are going to be saved? That's what I want to know. How many folks are going to be in heaven forever and ever and ever? What I mean is, when it is all said and done, when the roll is called up yonder, when the saints come marching in, when the dead in Christ are raised, at the end of the day, at the end of the story, how many are going to be saved? Now, the world could only have maybe four views of this for us that we could look at, and the the four views are very prolific to them. Number one, everyone's going to be saved. Number two, no one is going to be saved. Number three, some people will be saved and other people will be lost. Or the fourth answer is, is that there's no way to know this. Well, they haven't been to my sermon yet. So on the back of your worship guide, I would like you to follow along with me as we go through this process. In answer to these questions, how do we know who could be saved? In recent years, if you'll write down what number one was, it's become very popular, and that is everyone is going to be saved. It's become not only increasingly popular in the world, I'm sad to report that it's even become popular in evangelical Christianity. Within our own curtains, within our own sweet talk and sugar sticks that we give to one another. It's very, very difficult sometimes for us to realize that a loving God would allow someone to go to hell. Someone was sharing with me last night that they were in a conservative church when they found Christ, but for years they had gone to a very liberal church that told him every week, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you. He said, until I realized they almost loved me all the way to hell, and I had to get out and hear the truth about Jesus Christ. And so there are those that believe that, that even if they, folks reject Christ in this lifetime, somehow the love of God will overpower that, and that strikes a chord with many people who cannot bear the thought of anyone going to hell. Now, answer number two suggests, if you'll write it down, that no one will be saved because there's no such thing as salvation. This is the perspective of people who we would call atheists or do not believe in God. If there is no God, there cannot be a heaven, there cannot be a hell, and as a result, there is no salvation for anyone. When you die, it is all over. And then answer number three is certainly correct as far as it goes. And that is, some are going to be saved, and some are going to be lost. Now, clearly, if you're a student of the Bible, we know that that position is true. The most popular verse in all of the Bible is John 3, 16, and it points to two destinations in that verse where it declares that those who believe will not perish, but will have everlasting life. So there you have it. Two destinations. Some will perish, some will have everlasting life. It's not on the screen, but another scripture, John chapter 5, verse 28, says it another way when it speaks that some are raised to life and others are raised to judgment. And then the fourth perspective is there's just no way to know. That answer gives us another perspective by supposing that no one can know who is saved and who is lost. I want to say to you very frankly, since that's my name, that I agree with that statement a little bit. I do not know if you're saved. And you don't know if I am saved. That is a personal relationship that an individual has with Father God. And over the years, how many centuries have we had imposters and hypocrites suppose that they were something when there was no real relationship with God at all? But as we look at this answer in the absolute sense, even though it's correct that no one can know and no way to know from a human perspective, we do not know with final certainty how many people end up with eternal life. 
And the question, I suppose, could be framed this way this morning. How many people does God intend to save out of the great mass of humanity? And I mean going all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, coming all the way up to the present day. Of all the people who have ever walked on planet Earth, of the eight-plus billion people who are alive today on this planet, and all of those who will be born in the future until the end of time, how many will be saved? Will it be a few? Will it be many? Will it be a vast number? Or is there any honest way that we can really answer that question? Whenever we look at a question that I think is this profound and this deep, it's kind of important that we go to the Word of God. This week as I was researching for this message, I found a book on the internet called 100 Stupid Questions People Ask Jesus. And I thought, I think some of the questions I've asked Jesus have been pretty good. I did not open the book because I was afraid that I would be stupid when I found out some of the questions I'd asked Jesus that I thought were pretty good. But I want you to see the question we're going to talk about this morning in Luke's Gospel, chapter 13. It tells of the occasion where Jesus actually discusses the question. Would you notice with me in verse 22? It says, Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Now, the question arises as Jesus is going through certain villages on his way to Jerusalem. And may I remind you that this is the last time Jesus will go to Jerusalem. He's on his way to his crucifixion. The thing that he would do to pay for your sins and my sins. And and the question comes up. And we can think of various ways to look at that question today or or to ask it. Not only, Lord, will a few be saved. But maybe if you were praying or I were praying, Lord, I live in Columbus, Ohio. We are the largest city in the state of Ohio. In the greater Columbus area, we are told as of this year, we have 1.9 million people living here. Of the largest city in the state of Ohio, God, how many of us will go to heaven? How many are going to see you, Lord, for all of eternity? Or, Lord, I live in New York City, which happens to be the largest city in the United States of America. In the greater New York area, including the boroughs, there's a population of over 19 million people. Lord, how many of the 19 million will be going to heaven? How many really know you? Or, Lord, I'm from India. I'm from China. And I love my country. The two largest countries on the planet with well over one billion population in each of those countries. Lord, will only a few Indian nationals make it? Will only a few Chinese make it into heaven? And then, Lord, let's make it personal. How about my family? Lord, will my mom and my dad be in heaven? Lord, will my children be in heaven? I've done my best to raise them for you, Lord. Have they made a decision to trust you as their Savior because they can't go to heaven on Papa or Grandpa? Has that happened? I have brothers and sisters, Lord, that I love and cousins and aunts and uncles. How many of them are going to be saved? And the truth of the matter is we all wonder about these things from time to time. And I can prove it to you if you're a prayer warrior. Look at your prayer list and see how many times your family members are listed on it. You desperately, we pray perfunctorily, perfunctorily for things that are important to us, but we cry out in desperation for those that are close to us. Not just in a perfunctory way. And the way it's phrased, it almost demands the answer, there will be some saved, but, but not too many. And, and so I don't know this morning what your estimate is of the number of people that will be in heaven. 
I mean, from Adam and Eve to the very end of time, and there will be an end of time, what will the number be? What would the percentage be? Could it be that you believe 3% of people who have ever lived or will live will go to heaven? Maybe 5%? I mean, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and narrow is the path and straight is the way that leads to eternal life, and few there be that find it. Could it be 10%? Or what number would you give that would be higher because of the last decade and especially the last century with technology advancing the way it has and we have the gospel going around the entire world? Would you give me 25%? Who's got 35%? Would you give me a chance for 50% of the people going to heaven? Well, when Jesus hears the question, how many will go to heaven? What's interesting in this passage is similar to what Jesus does with many other questions he receives in the Bible. He doesn't answer it. He changes direction right in the midst of it. And he doesn't give a percentage or an indication at all. The number of people going to heaven, ready for this, you might want to jot it down, is hidden in the mind and the heart of God. He knows if you're a Christian. He knows if I'm a Christian. But he's not telling us. But notice what he does tell us. Look in verse 24 and following. It said, he said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door to us. But he will answer, I don't know you. Or where you've come from. Now watch this, guys. Jesus is actually envisioning a conversation that will take place on the last day. He said, then you will say, we ate and drank with you. And you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. It's almost as if he replies and says, listen, friend, that's none of your business. I know, but I'm not telling you. And Jesus kind of turns the tables on the questioner in that moment. And he says, here's what I want you to do. Make sure that you're saved. Don't worry about your brother or your sister. It's not my brother. It's not my sister. But it's me, O Lord, standing in need of prayer. Jesus is saying, be sure of your salvation. That's why a verse in the Bible says, these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. He says, take care of yourself first. And Jesus reminds us three times in those verses that there's not only a door, but it's a narrow door, meaning that not everyone's going to find it, and meaning it will be very easy to miss if you're not looking for it. It's as if Jesus is saying, while you're philosophizing about who else is going to go to heaven and make it, make sure that you personally find the door that leads to heaven and eternal life and make sure you go through it. And he's saying, let all the religious people be warned about this. In the context there, Jesus talks about the history of the people of religion and saying just because they're there doesn't mean that you're going to be there. I'll tell you who Jesus doesn't save. Jesus doesn't save people by denominational affiliation. That's going to scare some of you Baptist babies to death. But he does, it doesn't work that way with him. Let all religions be warned. Be warned. Islam, Christianity, Hinduism... And go through all of them. Your religion will not get you to heaven. Jesus doesn't go by denominational affiliation. 
Even if you attend the best Bible-believing church in town, don't think that your church membership gets you a seat in heaven. You say, but Pastor Frank, I went through membership class 101. I signed the paper. I'm a member of Genoa Baptist Church. Bless your heart. I belong to AAA and AARP. But I'm not counting on those to get me to heaven either. Is there an amen in the house? Can't go with that. Without a personal relationship to Christ, your church membership will not lead you to heaven, but it will lead you straight to hell. But that's not the end of the passage. Jesus adds two important pieces of the puzzle in verses 28 and 29, talking about that day. Notice what he says. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you ever seen anyone gnash their teeth? I have. Once was in a mental institution where the person just uncontrollably was gnashing their teeth over and over and grinding them and and weeping uncontrollably. It won't be in a mental institution. It'll be at the white throne judgment seat of Christ when people will be uncontrollably weeping and gnashing their teeth. And watch, he's talking to religious people. He says, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south. That's the full compass. East and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. I want you to know that God intends to have a lot of people at his banquet table. Jesus specifies that people will come from every corner and every quadrant on the earth. Anywhere a compass can point, they're going to come from. No part of the globe will be excluded. It's not like God is saying, I want a lot of Americans in heaven, but not a lot of people from other parts of the world. It's not like that. When God throws a party, God invites people from everywhere, all over the world, and they'll come streaming in, according to the Bible, from the north and from the south and from the east and from the west, and think about what that means. And let me make it very clear to you this morning. That means that God wants to invite Bolivians to the table. It means he wants Koreans in heaven. It means he wants citizens from the islands of the Pacific in heaven. It means he's inviting the citizens of Kosovo to be with him in heaven. He wants the Russians at the table. He wants the Chinese at the table. He wants folks from Canada and Sweden at the table. He wants to have the Moroccans sit down with him. He wants Turks there. He wants Iraqis there. He wants Iranians there. He wants Israelis there. All over this world we serve of God that's got the whole world in his hands, that he loves very, very much. And then that brings me to the other side of the question. If the first part of the question, narrow, is speaking of Jesus' view on things, the last part of this sentence and the scripture seems to be very broad indeed. Some very smart person one time said, I've heard it over and over, they said, if you look at a text without the context, it's only a pretext. And it's so easy to go into verse 22 and grab it and pull it out without looking at the context that God has for us in these other verses. And for all of those who may be under the sound of my voice, as I was for a long time because I was raised this way, that only a few of us are going to heaven. We even had a joke in our church growing up, us four and no more. You know, we were the elect. We were the select. We were the ones that God loved the most. And we would never say that, but sometimes our behavior and our passion to open the door to others reflected that. 
Sometimes, my dear brothers and sisters, there is a challenge in the church in America that we can be so happy and content with ourselves and get in padded seats and balcony popcorn chairs and have air conditioning and heat and everything can go so good and we have enough money coming in the till every week to pay the utilities. We forget about the reason the church is on earth today. The goal of us being ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ and knowing that God cares about a lot of people And God wants to save so many people, and we don't realize that. In the early months of last year, there was a very rich dude by the name of Elon Musk. You've heard of him, one of the richest people in the world. He owns all these companies, and SpaceX, and now he owns Twitter, and all of that. And when he took over Twitter, someone tweeted him. See how I know those words? And then they sent him a message, and they said, Mr. Musk... I hope that you have a relationship and believe in the creator of the universe. And he said, and if you have never asked him into your life, make sure you confess him before your last heartbeat. God bless you or bless you. Elon Musk, and this was on Christian Post News, replied to that message and said this. Thank you for the blessing, but I'm okay with going to hell. If that is indeed my destination, Since the vast majority of all humans ever born will be there. Now, guys, I knew a lot about Elon Musk. I did not know he was a theologian. (laughs) He's not a very good theologian. He doesn't understand the word of God. So conversely, I would like to share with you a quote from someone that you would agree with me. We would think is one of the top theologians, the great preachers of the centuries by the name of Charles Spurgeon. I heard a guy say one time, if you want to be accepted with great authority, always quote Charles Spurgeon or C.S. Lewis or Kenny Rogers. (laughs) And and so this morning I want to quote Charles Spurgeon, and, and, and this is from his sermon, Heaven and Hell. Would you lend me your ears and listen carefully to this? Spurgeon, and by the way, before I read it, you need to know Spurgeon was not some guy that was eloquent in his speech. He was a very direct, in your face preacher. And he said this, some narrow-minded bigots think that heaven will be a very small place where there will be a very few people who went to their chapel or their church. I confess I have no wish for a very small heaven and love to read in the scriptures that there are many mansions in my father's house. Amen? Amen. He said, how often do I hear people say, oh, straight is the gate and narrow is the way and few there be to find it. There will be very few in heaven. There will be most lost. Spurgeon said, my friend, I differ from you. Do you think that Christ will let the devil beat him? That he will let the devil have more in hell than there will be in heaven? No, it is impossible. For then Satan would laugh at Christ. There will be more in heaven than there are among the lost. God says that there will be a multitude that no man can number who will be saved. But he never says that there will be a number that no man can number that will be lost. There will be a host beyond all count who will get into heaven, end of quote. Now, that may not be conclusive to you, but I think what Spurgeon says at least warrants our consideration instead of just thinking a very small handful of people are going to heaven, that those many mansions are prepared for many, many people. And you'll never find a man who was more orthodox, who was more reformed in his thinking than Charles Spurgeon to share something like that. He's one of the greatest gospel preachers in history. And he says there's a host beyond all count who will get into heaven. 
And if our theology leads us to write off the greatest percentage of the human race as a hopeless cause, then maybe we should take our tradition, our theology, and check it with the Word of God and see what the Lord says. I don't think it's biblical to suggest that God intends to save just a tiny fraction of the human race that He created for His good pleasure that he loved so much that he sent his only begotten son to die for our sins that we could have a relationship with him. And in the Gospel of Luke, as we'll be looking at in the next weeks, you see the, the passion of God the Father and Jesus the Son. Go to the very next chapter. Don't turn there, but in chapter 14, you see a great analogy of the passion. It says, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room at your table. Amen. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of Jesus. Go to the next chapter, 15. You see the stories of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son, and the passion that the father directs to go get those that are lost outside of the pale of salvation. Our God is a big God. He has a very vast heart and a heart of grace reaching out to the entire world. And while it is true that there's a narrow way, don't quote me, I'm very familiar with Matthew chapter 7 and verse 2 also. However, that few turns out to be a vast, innumerable congregation from every corner of the earth. I mean, pause for a moment. Let me put it in practical terms for you. John the Revelator, while pinning back the curtains of eternity and telling us what the future heaven will be like, writes to us in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, these words. He said, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Does that sound like the very few? I'm telling you that in the lifeboat of salvation, anyone who wants to get in the boat, the Lord would never pass that individual up. You say, Frank, what do I have to do to be able to get in that lifeboat? And God makes it very clear. Jesus paid. Salvation was paid for at the cross. But if we confess with our mouth and truly believe in our heart that Jesus was crucified for our sins and that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says three times in four verses, you will be saved. You will be saved. You will be saved. And you say, well, I, I don't want to confess. Then maybe you're never going to make it to heaven. Because that's the process that's involved. We need to take Jesus' words to heart as we ponder both sides of Jesus' answer. Because multitudes will be saved, but listen to your pastor. Not everyone will be saved. I'm not talking about universalism. I'm not talking about one happy family on planet Earth. Jesus surely intends to warn us of religious types, especially to not ever think that our religion is going to get us into heaven. It's a relationship we must know him personally. And since God intends to save multitudes from every corner of the world, let's pray that God will give us a heart that embraces God's global vision. And sometimes it's so easy to forget about the rest of the world. So, so what does that mean to us today? On the back of your worship guide, I just want you to fill in the blank and jot these four things or five things down that you can pray about in the days ahead. Number one, because only God knows who is saved, we should be careful about speculating. You know, I can't tell you how many times you all have told me that Joel Osteen is not a Christian. 
I can't tell you how many times I've told you that Joe Biden is not a Christian. And sometimes we say things that go beyond the intelligence of our brain because we get diarrhea of the tongue. And in either case, we're probably wrong. And sometimes our prejudices, our predispositions can cause us to say something. And God in heaven is the only one who knows who is saved and who is not saved. God in heaven has done that. And because since he's the only one who knows who is saved, we should be very careful about speculating. We say that so-and-so can't possibly be a Christian. Well, to be perfectly clear about it, to claim to be a Christian and not know the Lord is an opposite situation. You must know the Lord to be a Christian. Make sure that you know the Lord. You say, well, what about the other person? Guys, let God take care of the other person. It's not my job to determine who goes to heaven. It's not your job to determine who goes to heaven. It's God's job. I'm in sales. He's in administration. We just have to grasp what God has given us to do and do our part as long as we're able to do it. Then the second thing I'd like you to jot down, because God's heart is big, we can say that no one is beyond the reach of salvation. That's so important because that touches on the truly wicked people in the world. We think that there's some sin that's unpardonable that God could never save them. Well, we know there's an unpardonable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and that's committed when you die and have not yet trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. There's no way that you're going to come back. And even if we don't want to admit it, don't you think that sometimes if we be real honest with ourselves, we have kind of a hierarchy of sin? And, and we don't like to admit it, but we compare ourselves on, on the list, this list to other people. And it's so easy to fall into. We're not mass murderers. We're not drug pushers. We're not pornographers. But as long as we rank ourselves above those kind of people, somehow we think we're a little bit better than they are, whether we say it or not. And when we think that way, we show that we do not understand the grace of God and the vastness of God's love. And also we do not realize our desperate need for God's grace in our own lives. It's not that God saves us and then reaches down in the sewer and pulls those people up. It's not that they're your first class and they're in baggage carriage through every bit of that. Sometimes we say there is grace even for mass murderers. And we say it triumphantly because we think we're better than mass murderers. But the warning that Jesus is giving to his disciples and to the religious people who thought they were on the inside, only to discover too late they were outside knocking on the door. Let us in. Let us in. Did we not eat together? Did we not spend time together? And Jesus said, depart from me, religious people. I didn't know you at all. Some of you are old enough to remember the name Corrie Ten Boom from World War II in the Nazi camp Ravensbrück. When she wrote so beautifully, there is no pit so deep that the love of God is not deeper still. Thank God that that statement is true. That means that anyone, anytime, anywhere can be saved without regard to what they've done in the past. Does the name Fanny Crosby ring a bell with you? There's so many wonderful praise songs today. We don't hear that name as often as we used to. Fanny Crosby was born and at six weeks of age she became blind. She stayed blind the rest of her life. By the time she was 15 years old, she had memorized five entire books of the Bible, King James Version, verbatim, word for word. She became a teacher and a professor, and to her credit, before she died, she wrote over 7,000 hymns that the Church of God has sang for the last 150 years. One of those songs that became very popular in our nation in the 1950s, thanks to Billy Graham's crusade, is a song called, To God Be the Glory, Great Things He Has Done. 
Just so you will know, it happens to be my favorite hymn in the whole sing, song, sing book. The whole song, the entire song book. Anytime something good happens, I always want to say, to God be the glory. Always give God the glory. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. And she includes a phrase in the second verse that I think is very profound. She was a great theologian. Listen to the words of the second verse. She said, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. God's grace is so deep, it reaches down further than any sin you've ever committed has ever taken you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how much evil you've experienced and you may be in, you can be saved if you will turn to Jesus and trust him with all of your heart. Fanny was right. The vilest defender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. And then the third thing I want you to reflect on this week is because God cannot be fooled, we must not fool ourselves. Sometimes... We wonder, can Muslim terrorists be saved? The people that did what they did, the atrocity on 9-11. And though you may not want to hear it, the answer is yes, if they turn to Jesus Christ and trust him for salvation. Perhaps it would be better and more appropriate if we were to ask, can a Baptist be saved? As amazing as it sounds. Or a Methodist, or a Catholic, or a Lutheran. And I know it's shocking to think about, but Jesus will even save self-righteous church members. Have you ever done what I've done? Occasionally, just feel very good about yourself? Have you ever hugged yourself? And just thought, you know, God, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Things are okay. And self-righteousness can slip in. And we forget what Pastor Scott taught on last week, that our righteousness is like filthy rags in the eyes of God. I'm, I'm so glad that, that, that God has a plan for us beyond our own. That not my plan to go to heaven is that I'm a church member and, and I have my share of self-righteousness and, and, I'm, and, and I'm trusting Jesus to save me. But guys, here's what I'm doing. I'm trusting Jesus to save me in spite of myself. In spite of my shortcomings and my fallacies and my flaws and all of those things. I've said this quote before, but I never knew who to attribute it to. And I understand that Donald Gray Barnhouse was the first one that said it about people going to heaven. Because if we're not careful, we can be like that guy in Luke who was up at the temple praying in his self-righteousness. And he said, oh, Lord, I thank thee that I am not like this man. We think that maybe we're just a little bit better. Donald Gray Barnhouse said there will be three surprises when we get to heaven. The first surprise is that we'll be seeing people there that we never expected to see in heaven. The second surprise is that some people are not there who we expected to see in heaven. And you remember this. The third great surprise is that we ourselves will be in heaven. And no doubt all three of those statements will possibly be true. But I think about the last one because sometimes Christians can take it upon themselves to think we deserve heaven. Heaven and salvation are a gift from God. Heaven is the end byproduct of having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want to be honest with you. After we play by all the rules and we still fall short, here's where the joy is going to come. When we get to heaven and we see the glories of heaven and stand 
in front of the angels that are gathered there. And when we get a glimpse of God and see the beauty of Jesus Christ, the greatest surprise is that we're allowed to be a part of that. And sometimes, even in our singing and our worship, we can just kind of sense it a little bit. You can smell it, the aroma of heaven just coming down so close and knowing, oh, Lord, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Then the fourth thing I want you to jot down Because God wants people from every corner of the earth, we've got to go to every corner of the earth to fill up his banquet hall. Guys, we've got to go to every corner of the earth so we can fill up his banquet hall. Can I tell you the truth? That's why we sing. That's why we pray. That's why we give. That's why we go. And that's why we send our best and our brightest to the four corners of this earth. Just in our own Southern Baptist Convention Fellowship of Churches, as of January the 1st, two weeks ago of this year, we have 3,521 missionaries serving in foreign fields. We have our children that are answering the call, going through years of training, raising funds, learning strange languages, boarding a plane, and taking all their earthly possessions in about 12 bags with their children and towing off to some distant land for the sake of the gospel. Why do we do this? Why to go to all that trouble if not to share the good news with those who never heard it? Why give so much money? Why, those of us that are older, let our grandchildren grow up and go to the other side of the world? Family that we'll be separated from at Christmas time and Thanksgiving time and birthdays. It's not that just, just that God called us to go. It's not just that we have the Great Commission before us. It's not just that we believe in world missions. All those things are true. We don't deny any of those things. But surely the underlying reason for all of that is God's heart that he has revealed to us that every person counts to him. If God wants Bolivians at the banquet, someone has to go invite them. If God wants Russians at the banquet, someone has to go invite them. If God has a heart for unreached people groups, whether they're in the thickness of a jungle or in a remote mountainside, someone has to go and learn the language and interpret the words and love them and pray with them and pastor them and tell them the great story of God's love revealed in the Bible. We're not going simply because we're commanded to go. We go because God's heart compels us to go. That it's not just for us four and no more. And if God so loved the world dying for them, then someone has to go and tell them the way of life. Then the last thing, would you jot it down? Because God has said that many will be saved. We ought to pray that many will be saved. Not just for our family. Not just for us four and no more. But to pray for cities and cosmopolitan areas and nations around the world. Listen again to what Revelation 7, 9 says. This is God's word. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. One missionary spoke about going to a Czech Republic not long ago and meeting with a group of missionaries that was working all in Eastern Europe. As he sat down at lunch with this one Czech couple, he said to them, to the girl, to the the wife, he said, is your whole family Christian? And she said, no. She said, my mother has accepted Christ, but I have a brother who is not saved. Listen to this. I have a brother who is not saved yet. That's a powerful prayer. 
She could have said, I have a brother who is not saved, and that's just a statement about a current condition. But when you say, I have a brother who is not saved yet, that means God's still in the mix of things. That means that God can intervene and God can move. And how many of you have brothers and sisters who were not saved yet, and to your amazement, they were saved? Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's what your brothers and sisters told me about you. To think that one day, do you remember, I was not saved yet, and one day it was I had a eureka moment. The message made sense. The Holy Spirit drew me. God's word became real to me. And in that moment, it was transformation. Everything changed immediately. The little word yet means the way things are today is not the way they're going to be tomorrow. I'd give anything in the world if you would just go home and just put on your refrigerator two words, not yet. Not saved yet. No miracle yet. But it's on its way. It's praying. I believe God has some big work to do here. And I'm praying when you do that, and I sound like Joel Osteen, I'm praying what I presently do not see. That's called faith. The Bible says that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not yet seen. That we pray that God would move in a powerful way. He is not saved yet. She is not saved yet. My son has not come back to the Lord yet. Hold on to that little word yet. That's why we wait and pray and why we keep believing. Will only a few people be saved? No, you tell them, Frank Carl said it, multitudes are going to be saved from the north and the east. And thank God from the south and the west. And there's a number so large that no one can count. And I just want to tell you, make sure you're among them. We serve a God who's in the saving business. And God honors a forward-looking faith. And just because you have loved ones that are not saved today doesn't mean they won't come to Christ tomorrow. And church, we need to pray and believe for those who don't know the Lord yet. And let us say, he is not saved yet. She is not saved yet. God is not finished yet. And if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ, it is no accident because today can be your yet. Today could be the day that the Holy Spirit speaks to you and you say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart, into my life. Forgive me of my sins. I want to come to the banquet table and be there. Listen to the words of Fanny Crosby once again. Did I tell you that this is my favorite song? Listen to what she said. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. The theology. Man, it's powerful. I wish pulpits across America would preach this way today. So loved he the world that he gave us his son. Who yielded his life in atonement for sin. And opened the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory. Great things he has done.